Hello and welcome to episode three of Yes, That Really Did Happen. My name is John, of course, and today we're looking at the tragic explosion in Halifax Harbor in 1917. Before we get into the explosion, we need to discuss a bit of the history of Halifax and the harbor. And why were there so many ships in Halifax Harbor in 1917? Halifax Harbor was well used and well known by the British Navy. It was a harbor for the British Navy and during the American Revolution, during the Napoleonic Wars, and during the War of 1812. The completion of the Intercolonial Railway across what is now Canada in 1880 allowed for increased traffic and steamship trade. In the 1890s, Halifax started to struggle a little, and the Canadian government in 1906 decided they were going to spend a lot of money to develop the harbor and the waterfront facilities. Just before World War I, this project was finished, and the outbreak of the war brought Halifax back to prominence. In 1910, Canada had formed the Royal Canadian Navy. However, they had virtually no real ocean-going ships. They had a lot of coastal defense ships, but they hadn't gotten to the point of building large capital ships. So the Royal Navy assumed the responsibility for maintaining Atlantic trade routes and adopted Halifax as its North American base of operations. There was a growing fleet of patrol boats, tugboats, and minesweepers run by the Canadian Navy in 19, starting in 1915. And by 1917, when the United States entered World War I, there was a rather large naval fleet, including patrol ships, tugboats, and Royal Navy cruisers and destroyers. During World War I, Germany had a large fleet of submarines, and they were having a very successful time sinking lone ships traveling from North America to Europe to supply the Allies. If this sounds familiar, this also happened during World War II. To combat the U-boats, which, remember, 1917, no radar, very little air cover, virtually none at sea, no aircraft carriers, was very easy for a U-boat to sneak in, sink a ship, and disappear underneath the water. The key to combating U-boats was the convoy system. Convoys of ships, their safety in numbers, there would be destroyers and cruisers around the perimeter, and the merchant ships carrying these vital war supplies were in the center. These convoys 
mustered in Halifax Harbor. Halifax Harbor is large, and there was a large area for merchant ships to gather. And then it was protected by two sets of anti-submarine nets and guarded by patrol boats. So ships could hang out there in the harbor, not worry about submarines sneaking into the harbor to, to sink the shipping. And also, any neutral ship bound for ports in North America were required to report to Halifax for inspection to make sure they weren't bringing troops from... Germany and the others into North America to sabotage manufacturing, shipping. A little more backstory on this time in World War I history. This was right after the revolution in Russia. And henceforth, Russia had withdrawn from the war. So there was a big need for supplies and troops and everything from North America. And with the United States having just joined the world in April of 1917, to summarize it, Halifax was the hub of all shipping traffic to and from North America in 1917. So that brings us to December 5th, 1917. On December 5th, 1917, a ship entered the harbor called the SS Imo. It had sailed from the Netherlands en route to New York to secure relief supplies for Belgium, the Netherlands being a neutral country. The ship arrived in Halifax on December 3rd. Spent two days awaiting refueling and clearance to leave the port. Clearance was given on December 5th. However, the coal load that she needed to make New York did not arrive until late afternoon. By the time the coal was loaded onto the ship, the anti-submarine nets had been raised for the night and the vessel could not depart until the next morning. At the same time, a French cargo ship called the SS Mont Blanc arrived from New York. The Mont Blanc was a cargo ship that was 320 feet long, had a beam of 44 feet, and drew about 15 feet of draft. It was fully laden with 2,300 tons of picric acid, which was used inside of shells to make them explode, 500 tons of TNT, 10 tons of gun cotton, and benzo, which was a coal tar product that was very flammable, but not explosive. This is important. <laughs> that ship left New York late, arrived late to Halifax Harbor, and had to wait out the night of 
December 5th, to enter the harbor to join her convoy for Europe. So navigating in and out of the basin where these ships were anchored, there was this strait called the Narrows. And the ships were expected to keep close to the side of the channel situated on their starboard. So oncoming vessels would pass port to port. That means on the left side of the ship, they were they would pass each other. If every ship abided by this they would pass with no problem and they were restricted to a speed of five knots to make sure everything went smoothly so the morning breaks and it's the morning of december 6th 1917 The IMO is given clearance to leave. A local pilot, harbor master, was on board, and the ship entered the Narrows well above the harbor speed limit in an attempt to make up for the delay experienced in loading her coal. The IMO met the American tramp steamer SS Sierra, being piloted up the wrong side of the harbor, and the pilots agreed to pass starboard to starboard. Soon afterwards, the IMO was forced to head even further towards the shore, passing the tugboat Stella Marie starboard to starboard. And was still traveling at excessive speed. The harbor pilot on the Mont Blanc was then granted permission to enter the harbor. The Mont Blanc headed towards the basin on the Dartmouth side of the harbor, which is to say any incoming, any ships would be passing port to port. They were keeping an eye on the ferry traffic between Halifax and Dartmouth, which are right across the harbor from each other. And when he spotted the IMO, about a three quarters of a mile away, he became concerned as the path was headed right towards the ship's starboard side, as if to cut him off. They gave a short blast of the ship's whistle to indicate he had the right of way, but was met with two short blasts from the IMO, indicating the approaching vessel could not yield its position. The captain ordered the Mont Blanc to halt her engines and angle slightly to starboard, closer to the Dartmouth side of the Narrows, let out another single blast of his whistle, hoping the other vessel would likewise move to starboard, but again was met with a double blast. Again, the IMO was traveling much, much too fast to slow down or stop. Ships do not have brakes. 
and ships are hard to stop, especially in a short distance. Both ships had cut their engines by this point, but their momentum carried them toward each other at a very slow speed. Unable to ground his ship for fear of shock which set off his explosive charge, the Mont Blanc steered hard to port and crossed the bow of the Emo in the last section to avoid collision. The two ships were almost parallel to each other when the Imo suddenly sent out three signal blasts indicating the ship was reversing its engines. The combination of the cargoless's ship height in the water and the transverse thrust of her right-hand propeller caused the ship to swing into the Mont Blanc, breaching the number one hold on the starboard side. The collision occurred at 8.45 a.m. The damage to the Mont Blanc was not severe, but barrels of deck cargo toppled and broke open. This flooded the deck with the benzoyl, which again is a petroleum product made with tar that is extremely flammable. And that benzoyl has now had a way to move off deck where it was stored away from the explosives. The hold was breached by the IMO and that is pouring down into the hold where all of the explosives are. Then the IMO fired up its engines, which created sparks inside the Mont Blanc hull as it's trying to pull the ship away. This ignited the vapor from the benzoyl, and the fire started at the waterline and traveled up the side of the ship, coated in this thick, tarry petroleum product. So now the ship is just absolutely covered with thick black smoke. And the captain says, okay, abandoned ship, this thing's going to explode. Everybody's getting off the Mont Blanc, and as in any harbor town, a fire in the harbor is going to gather onlookers. So a large number of Halifax citizens stood on the street or looked out the windows of their homes to watch the spectacular fire. The crew of the Mont Blanc shouted from their two lifeboats to some of the other vessels that their ship was about to explode, but they couldn't be heard above the noise and confusion as the lifeboats made their way across the harbor, the abandoned ship continued to drift and beached itself near Pier 6. The tugboat Stella Maurice responded immediately to the fire, anchoring to the barges and spraying the burning ship with their fire hose. The tugboat's captain and his crew realized the fire was too intense for their single hose and backed off. They were approached by a whaler, the HMS High Flyer, and the cruiser HMCS Niobe. They tried to pull the French ship's stern away from the pier to avoid setting the pier on fire.
the out-of-control fire on board the Mont Blanc was getting worse. There was not enough firefighting apparatus available in the amount of time that they had in the harbor to douse the flames. At 9.04 a.m., the out-of-control fire set off the high-explosive cargo of the Mont Blanc. The ship was blown completely apart. A blast wave radiated away from the explosion at 1,000 meters per second. Temperatures of 9,000 degrees Fahrenheit and pressures of thousands of atmospheres accompanied the moment of detonation at the center of the explosion. Shards of iron and metal fell down upon Halifax and Dartmouth. The 90-millimeter gun on the bow of the Mont Blanc landed three and a half miles away from the explosion. The barrel was bent in half from the force of the blast. The anchor of the Mont Blanc landed two miles south of the ship. A cloud of white smoke rose up to about 12,000 feet. And the blast was felt as far away as Prince Edward Island, which is 110 miles from Halifax. An area over 400 acres was completely destroyed by the explosion. And the harbor floor was momentarily exposed by the volume of the water that was displaced. A tsunami formed by the water surging to fill in the void, and it rose as high as 60 feet above the high water mark of the harbor. The blast killed all but one on the whaling ship. Everyone, it killed all the sailors from the cruiser who were fighting the fire. It killed 21 of the 26 men on the tugboat. And all but one of the Mont Blanc crew members who had abandoned ship did survive. Over 1,600 people were killed instantly, and 9,000 were injured, more than 300 of which later died. The total death toll from this was about 2,000 people. Every building in a 1.6 mile radius, over 12,000 in total, was either destroyed or so badly damaged it was in an uninhabitable. Hundreds of people who had been watching the fire from their homes were blinded when the blast wave shattered the windows in front of them. Overturned stoves and lamps, which were still in heavy use at the time, as most homes did not have electricity, started fire throughout Halifax, particularly in the north end, where entire city blocks burned, trapping residents inside their houses. There were some large factories near Pier 6 that disappeared into just heaps of rubble. They were unrecognizable. The Nova Scotia cotton mill, a mile away from the blast, was destroyed by fire and collapsed all of its concrete floors. The Royal Navy College of Canada building was badly damaged and several cadets and instructors were maimed. 
The Richmond railway yards and the station were destroyed, killing 55 railway workers and damaging over 500 railway cars. This is one of the busiest stations in Canada at the time, as all troop ships were leaving out of Halifax and all soldiers living in Canada moving across the Atlantic left out of Halifax. Again, because this is where the convoys all started. The death toll could have been a lot worse if it had not been for the self-sacrifice of a railway dispatcher named Vince Coleman. When the explosion occurred, he was working about 750 feet from the ship. He and his co-worker learned of the dangerous cargo aboard the burning Mount Blanc and began to flee. As they were leaving, Coleman remembered that an incoming passenger train from St. John, New Brunswick was due to a rail yard within minutes. He returned to his post alone and continued to send out urgent messages to stop the train. And among them, from the Maritimes Museum of the Atlantic, one of the messages is said to have said, Hold up the train, ammunition ship on fire in harbor, making for Pier 6, and will explode. Guess this will be my last message. Goodbye, boys. All incoming trains came to a stop. Had that train gotten there, it would have had over 300 soldiers on it. This was the largest explosion ever until the nuclear bomb. Okay, this was the largest singular explosion until the nuclear bomb. Once the explosion happened, despite its use as a major shipping port, despite its use as a harbor, the city was not equipped to deal with such a mass casualty event. So, help was needed. There were thousands of people hurt. There were over a thousand people dead. And there needed to be a concerted relief effort and rescue effort. All ships that could help within range, um, merchant cruisers, Coast Guard cutters, U.S. cruisers, they all came in to, they all came in to Halifax to help. One ship, the USS Tacoma, was so close to Halifax when the explosion happened and was rocked so badly they went to general quarters thinking they were being attacked. Of course, this is during world wartime. And people were fe- fearful of uh, potential second explosions. 
they were fearful of various other types of things that could happen. German sabotage, German planes dropping bombs, things of that nature. There was also a magazine uh, at the barracks. There were shore protecting guns and forts at the entrance to the harbor, and the magazine started catching fire too. Fortunately, those were able to be put out, and they did not explode. The surviving railway workers at the rail yards carried out rescue work, pulling people from the harbor and from under debris. The overnight train from St. John was just approaching the city when it was hit by the blast, but only slightly damaged. And it continued until the track was blocked by wreckage. Passengers and soldiers aboard used emergency tools from the train to dig people out of houses, bandage them with sheets from the sleeping cars. The train was then loaded with the injured. A doctor was on board and it took off to St. John where there was more hospital room. Rescue trains were dispatched from all across Atlantic Canada as well as the northeastern United States. The first left in the Atlantic Canada area, a place called Truro, and left about 10 a.m. and returned carrying wounded and homeless by 3 p.m. To reach the wounded, rescue personnel had to walk through parts of the devastated city until they reached a point where the military had begun to clear the streets. By nightfall, a dozen trains had reached Halifax from the Nova Scotia towns of Turo, Kentville, Amherst, Sydney, to name a few. Relief efforts were hampered the following day when a blizzard hit. That would be December 7th, 1917. A blizzard hit Halifax and dumped 16 inches of heavy snow. Trains en route from other parts of Canada and from the United States were stalled in snowdrifts now. Telegraph lines that had hastily been repaired following the explosion were now knocked down by the snow. This was one of the biggest wartime disasters to hit North America. It had many far-reaching effects. One of the positive outcomes with it was the city of Boston. Boston had a long history of a good relationship with Halifax, Nova Scotia, going all the way back to the 1700s. There were business interests at the time, fishing, shipping. The bond between the two cities was strong. When word hit on December 6th that there was this explosion and relief was needed in Halifax, the city of Boston and the businesses in Boston wasted no time. They loaded up a train. By 10 p.m., a relief train went out to assist survivors. The blizzard following the explosion did delay the train and did not arrive until early morning on December 8th, where it immediately began distributing food, water, medical supplies, and enough medical personnel to relieve the Nova Scotia medical staff 
who had worked without rest since the explosion for two days straight. In 1918, as a gesture of thanks for the relief of the explosion in 1917, Halifax sent a Christmas tree to the city of Boston. The tree still gets sent every year. If you want to learn more about this, there's a lot of extra places on the internet and books you can read about it. And I promise next week we will approach a more uplifting subject than a massive explosion. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it.